All right, Josh Smith here, live at my studio, live at Flat 5, and my guest today is one of my good friends and one of the brightest voices in, you know, this world that we live in, the blues, guitar world, contemporary blues. He's not just a blues guitar player, though, but that's where his heart lies, like me, and uh, I just respect the hell out of this guy. You know, we're around the same age. We have a lot of similar background and common stories and uh, we're just going to shoot the shit for you right now. But, dude, it's a pleasure to have you. Please, everybody, welcome Matt Schofield. Thanks, mate. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for those kind words. It's very nice coming from you, man. I appreciate oh, that. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. you know, absolutely, dude. You're one of the, my favorite players in the world. And, you know, there's not a lot of people that I can, you know, truly say, oh, that guy has this understands where I'm coming from. He has the background that I have. And, you know, with yeah, you and Kirk it. and Joe, yeah. we're all coming from this, this place. You know, we've been doing it long enough, but we're around the same age. We have the same influences. So we can all literally bitch at each other constantly. Because <laughs> yeah. The I think there's a lot, lot to be said for the generational thing, actually, you know, and like especially with a lot of players as well. I mean, I'm, a, I'm from 77, and uh, uh, Joe is, and Kenny Wayne Shepherd is, and John Mayer is, and so you're a bit more youthful. Seventy nine, yeah, Kirk yeah. But I think, yeah. I think we all are cut from the same cloth to some degree. There, right? We all heard the same things at the same time, and it had the same effect on us. You know, I think is, uh, you know, even if we came at it from for different reasons that there was some kind of catalyst i think for all of us uh particularly i think with stevie ray for sure you know so of 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 that that kind of discovery for us at a certain age you know yeah there's a difference between the people who saw stevie kind of alive and the ones who just got it right when he passed you know and yeah that's us you know and it was like yeah, yeah i think we just were so enamored right away with with yeah. that especially when we were able to see it on video like it was just such a game changer to see that um, i saw him on video two weeks before he died and, oh, okay. and yeah. that, i'd heard yeah. him like two or three months but i only had one track you know because i was a cassette generation right i don't know about yeah, you absolutely. yeah so it's so i had a cassette of his version of voodoo child from live alive you know and uh it, my dad had put it on side B of Clapton's Journeyman album, right? So I had, and I liked the Clapton album and stuff, you know? But then that video, I'm like, what the hell is this? I'd never heard anything like that. So then a few months later, I'm in California, and I'm like, what is that to my dad? And he's got the uh, riverboat with BB and Albert Collins, you know? Oh, really? On video. He taped it off I TV or whatever? Yeah, yeah, VH1 or whatever. He, yeah. you know, he used to, same as us. I know you've been, like, digitizing all your VHS, but he used to do that. He used to keep a video in the VCR ready to go, you know, in case something cool came on. And uh, so I watched that, and that was, like, two weeks before he died. So I was like, okay, this is this is on now, man, you know. And then he died. So it almost put more of a punctuation on it, you know, like. Well, especially that concert, you're seeing him play with, you know albert collins and bb and wasn't katie webster on there and uh yeah yeah everybody you know that's edited right like those tracks like are edited and i it's got to be Weird. the full thing somewhere man you know there's got to be more to that show without yeah. question yeah. yeah 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 
So, okay, so that brings me back to you mentioned your dad making you tapes and playing you music. I know he turned you on to BB King. Uh, yeah. But does your dad play? No. Um, he was, he always had a guitar around, you know, and, uh, but he, he didn't loved really it, but play, he didn't play it. Yeah. It was one of those things. Uh, he'll tell you that a guy showed him, uh, I can't even, he's got one lick. I'm not even kidding. He has one and it's, it's, I, I can kind of hear it in my head. I can't think what it is. It's just like a turnaround that a guy showed him on night shift when he was a teenager in Manchester, you know? And so he always had a guitar, but he, he should have learned to play it, but didn't. But there was always, it was always a guitar thing because the music he loved was all, all um, guitar playing stuff, you know, and, and blues. And he was, you know, he was a teenager in the late 60s in the UK. Yeah. So the great guys were going over there before anybody knew about him here in the US, really. So he saw Freddie King and Howlin' Wolf on a double bill in Manchester, you know, and it's like that kind of... So in a way, he was hearing the same records that guys like Clapton and Keith Richards and those guys were. That He was getting the same stuff that they were listening to before people knew about it here. And he's way more into or way more knowledgeable about, um, you know, acoustic and Delta blues and uh, Mississippi stuff than I am, you know. So he, he was always into um, Sunhouse and Scrapper Blackwell and Mississippi, oh, nice. yeah. all that. Yeah, so he's... Um, I kind of dived in at the electric thing, obviously, you know. Okay, so he had a guitar around, but he didn't play. So did you just pick it up, or did somebody teach you something? Like, how, how do you how yeah. does the fascination begin? Well, it's slightly murky recollection, but I there was a guy coming into uh, school um, when I was about eight. So I'm in what we call primary school in the UK, um, eight years old. So he was doing lessons um, in the school like once a week. So I got a nylon string, three-quarter size of my own. But when I say lessons, it, you know, I learned uh, easy G, you know, and then we would do like, London's burning, London's burning, fetch the end. <laughs> right? that's, so that's what the lessons were. And that wasn't hugely exciting. So again, still for me, the guitar just sat there for a bit longer, you know, until then I started hearing, actually really listening to the stuff my dad was listening to, so, um, which was BB's, uh, there was always one more time record, which came out around like 88 or something like that. So, um, um, so then I had that as an album that I loved. You know, the other crazy thing was, I was just talking to a friend about this the other day, even before that, I was into this artist from the UK in the early 80s called Shaken Stevens, right? People in the US might not know him. But basically, it's like an 80s version of Elvis. And all his tunes are swung. They're all shuffles. And he was my favorite guy as a kid when I'm like four or five years old. And it was all shuffles. And it's basically 12 bars. I didn't know what that was. For some reason, that was my first favorite stuff. So it all been heading in that direction all along. And then uh, I remember him, uh, Ry Cooter's, uh version of All Shook Up, right? And yeah. he has that stinky intro on it, just the solo guitar. Went, and I just had that and kept rewinding that. Again, not knowing how to play any of it at all, but uh, fascinated by the sound of this guitar. More, It was like the tone thing, really, more than anything. I was already drawn to that, so... Somehow we went 
from there, you know. And I don't really remember exactly how I got playing in a way. Do you know, like, it's really hard to remember. Then I could just sort of do it somehow. It's weird. Well, when, did you have people showing you stuff? Like when you stopped having the guy at, at you know, your school showing you green yeah. sleeves or whatever, did you have, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> somebody that would, you know, stop in and show you something or someone you would ask no. questions to? No. No, I was because I was way out in the country in the UK, so I just had records. So what actually the first thing I learned was Voodoo Char. Um, from probably, I think I had Jimmy's version on it like a best of the 60s cassette and stevie's version that my dad had put on that thing but so i learned the intro but i my ears were i don't even i didn't even know people were tuned into e flat so it probably sounded horrendous i was probably you know i didn't know about any of it but i learned uh, like that in the wrong octave but figured out the sound and then i was like uh okay that sounds like now to you know and and then then you've got the minor pentatonic so i do that yeah. was i remember learning that and uh, then i could kind of make licks up if you know what i mean by going sorry about that click on my system here i don't know what's going on but we'll have to live with it but and then you got the blues and um, so i remember that and then i remember figuring out like how octaves work right so i was like okay so that is that is that and, and then it's like, oh, you can play that thing here and then, then play that thing here. Those are like the two things I remember all of a sudden being like, uh, wow, how, that's how it works, right? And, uh, and then rewinding cassette. Kind of, it was all self-discovery. Yeah, and then, you know, at the same time, I'm buying guitar magazines and reading about it. And then, you know, then you'd see tabs in there. And I so I'm sure I went through some stuff like tab wise, you know. But it was by that point it was all kind of easier to just like listen to what. And well, you know, if if your main diet is like BB Albert Albert Collins, Freddie Stevie Hendrix, Clapson, once you've got that pentatonic down, you can kind of start picking it out from all of them right nobody's doing Absolutely. anything that radical so yeah and that was the main diet for the first five years or something you know so. right so so that's like you're in what would be how you start to get in high school age i guess yeah i'm like 12 13 and then i always point out and i didn't realize this till years later how important it was i immediately started a band i mean i've been playing like six months and i'm like well i have to have a band so most of my learning was done in the context of getting together with the guys in the music room after school. And I had a really cool music teacher and he would let us go in at the weekend, you know, give us the keys to the, the music department. And, you know, my first gig was on the school's uh, Marlin Sidewinder Strat copy because I didn't have an electric yet. I was still on that nylon string. So I borrowed that. So we were gigging and playing as a band all the time. And I think that's... Especially when we do, uh, you know, True Fire stuff or clinic stuff. And a lot of people play to backing tracks these days, don't they? And, and that's their world of guitar. But I never did that. And I know you didn't either, right? It was no, I jammed with records and then I went and played with the guys. And we made music together. And so I've realized that that's quite 
pivotal to the whole thing is it the, the experience was entirely making music with other human beings for me so yeah and these were guys your age from school then oh yeah yeah so we like it was like i decided i was going to play guitar and so a friend of mine uh chris goes well i'll play bass you know and then another friend of mine france goes well i'll play drums you know another friend rob was like well i play a bit guitar as well but i can play some keys you know it was like and then another friend John's like he was the he was the hot drummer in school, so poor Franz got fired and John got hired. You know, it was <laughs> it was like that in thirteen year old band politics, man. You know. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, man, when you're when you're with like minded and aged people, mm -hmm. you can grow so fast because the enthusiasm level is through the roof. Like it's everything it's is did. so fun. It's all we did every waking hour, you know, both days of the weekend, every night after school. And, uh, you know, we were, we were all into the same stuff. You know, everybody was getting, uh, we were playing, you know, BB and I mean, my first gig, there's me like 13 year old voice hasn't broken singing Manish boy. <laughs> it's ridiculous really when you think about it, but Hey, we didn't know any better, you know. It was I'm, that we I'm loved very it. familiar with that scenario. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is ridiculous looking back on it, you know. But <laughs> man, you just loved it so much, you know. You wanted yeah. to do, yeah. Every waking minute, man. Yeah, and yeah. you know, dressing the part as well. We looked like a band, you know. Yeah. We did. There was no. And by the way, this is in an area of the UK called the Cotswolds, which is the classic, beautiful British countryside, green rolling hills. So it's a very small town. Basically, you'd call it a village, you know, by a few thousand people. So we were the only band in school, and we were definitely the only band walking around town, you know, with <laughs> with the boots and the jackets. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was uh, hilarious, really. But it, that's what we were. You know, it was genuine as well. You know what I mean? It was totally sincere. So you said you had a music teacher in school. Were you yeah. learning any music in school at that same time or no? No, uh, he was very cool. Uh, he was a classical guy, you know, classic British school system uh, music teacher. And he didn't really understand what we did, but he knew we were pretty good at it and enthused by it. So he encouraged it. Uh, even to the point where I didn't do the music course in school because it was all reading and, and classical music. Uh, but he said to me, um, he said, listen, just turn up on exams days. I know you haven't done the curriculum and I know you don't read because I, I didn't read anything. Um, he goes, but if you do the improvisation and performance part, um, I'll pass you on that and you'll fail on the, on the written part. But that's how cool he was. He just said, just turn up. And uh, it'll average out and you'll get a C grade in music. But I didn't go to the classes at all. But we were in there hanging out every day, you know. But he knew I yeah. wasn't interested. I mean, I should have. It's ridiculous, really, to have not done it and not learned to read. And, you know, but it just, I wasn't into that. At, at, at this, that would have been 15 years old, you know. Yeah. I wasn't into it. I was just into playing with the band. So I, I, st I never did. But I played Little Wing for my... Uh, for my uh, performance piece, <laughs> you know, so I got f full marks on the performance and failed the written. So. Right. <laughs> All right. So you and your friends then are playing. You're starting to get through school, and yeah. uh, so it's a small village. I mean, I'm assuming there's not that many places to play. Do you start getting paid gigs yet, or no? 
Yeah, we well, the one thing that we had, especially there's some pubs around, you know, like we go in at the near town Sirencester and there was pubs there and uh but the main thing we used to do that was really cool, there was a US Air Force base uh in about five miles from the town. It's actually one of the biggest in Europe called the RAF Fefford. It's a Royal Air Force base, but the US Air Force rented it and we're talking early nineties here, uh during the first Gulf War. Yeah. So it's where the B-52 bombers would stop from the U.S. on their way to Iraq. It's got the longest landing strip in, in Western Europe. Mm. So they had a rec room. And so this is the early 90s. So we started getting hired to play uh, for the U.S. servicemen in, at the Air Force Base because they all loved all the stuff we were playing. Nobody knew who... Stevie Ray Vaughan was where I grew up, let alone BB King or Howling Wolf or something. But these these guys, you think in early nineties, they all loved that stuff, man. You know, so um, so we used to play there, uh, you know, all the time doing these gigs uh, for the U.S. Air Force. So that became like our, our like home gig. You know what I mean? Um, which was really it was just something very perfect about having that right nearby. And when you went in the Air Force base, it was, you know. Uh, like going into America, so all the cars and trucks were American, and they brought everything with them. It was one dollar Budweisers, you know. It was like that kind of thing. So. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, pretty I cool. Know that I, I never heard you tell that story. That's cool. Yeah, that was that was a gig, and then other little pubs, and you know, people's like little local house parties and stuff like that. You know, what I mean, but uh, it wasn't. Guys- from that band uh are they any of them professional musicians no they're not they all still play a bit here and there but they they're all uh um uh have different careers now and i but we still see each other you know we we keep in touch uh all of us and when i'm back there we'll all go for beer and stuff you know and uh i'm actually uh the godfather of uh john the drummer's son you know so uh uh, yeah, you know, everybody's really tight still. I think the time like that that you spend is, is something that, um, you you know, you never forget. And like I say, I, the fir- the longer ago it is, the more I realize how formative it was for me having that, those, having a band. In some ways, it's the most band I've ever had, <laughs> you know, like where it's really the band, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you finished school then. And it's pretty much time to like you know shit or get off the pot, I guess. Are you gonna yeah. go continue school or are you all in on music? You know what what yeah. what drives your decision? I'm all in, man, because uh, I was supposed to be going to uh, career vocational classes at, in you know I like, we call it sixth form and uh, so from 17 and 18 in in uh, UK high school. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to play guitar, you know. And back then, there was we we weren't being offered like anything vocational within the music industry. So nobody said like, um, well, have you thought about maybe studio engineering or perhaps uh, you know you can go to college and do something music. It was either you go to college and you do English, maths, or science or something like that, or you don't go to college. Those it wasn't presented in any other way. Excuse me, but I wasn't going to do it anyway, um, because by then I'd started going to London uh, to jam sessions, and uh, so that was with Johnny Henderson, uh, my longtime keyboard playing uh, colleague and friend, 
his older brother James uh, is a guitar player, and uh, so he was a, a year older and he had a car, and uh, <laughs> so we would drive to London and go to these go to these jams, like pro jams, really good ones in London. There was a good scene in, in this is like 97 now in London where, so I met a bunch of people, there's a, a guy called Ian Siegel from uh, the UK who's quite a uh, well-regarded blues artist um, these days and has been for a while. And that's where I met him. We both happened to go to the same jam the same week, you know, and we still do things together. That's 20, 23 years later. So, uh yeah, you know, so that was it then. So um, then it was moved to London, really, and uh, go for it. So my first gig professionally, um, I was probably not quite even 19, I think I was 18, was at the 100 Club in London, which is where I still play sometimes these days. So yeah. I haven't actually progressed from my first first show in London, but that was with a great harmonica player, incredible player called Lee Sankey from the UK, who's... Um, incredible and i so you know i basically got in bands in london and started to you know like that and uh here we are now you know in some yeah. respects yeah so you had to i mean you had to just kind of go you like we said all in you know there's no backup plan you just go to london no. and start going to jams start getting called to play gigs sideman playing blues all yeah time. yeah and to get i was in like three or four different bands at some point some of them like straight blues bands some of them you know actually where i met evan jenkins that has been uh that's drummed with me for many years on and off and um was in like a kind of half blues r&b cover band you know uh where we played you know yeah some rock and roll and it might do georgia on my mind but then we'll do louis louis whatever you know like everything you know Sweet Home Alabama. So, because of course, at that point, I'm like, I don't care, you know. It's, I'm playing guitar and living in London, and I'm 19, 20 years old, you know. Yeah. And then I got in Dana Gillespie's band. She's a British blues singer that's um, been around, uh, been active in the music scene since the late 60s. A bit of a, um, um, very well regarded in the UK. And so, with her, we started touring internationally in Europe, you know. Uh, so, like my first European tour date was the Blues to Bop Festival in Lugano, Switzerland, which I think is still going now. But it was, it's incredible. It's by the Lake Maggiore in in uh, Lugano, Switzerland. I'm like, yes, this is this is what I want to do. You know. Yeah. So uh, none of it, and I'm sure it's the same for you. Um, in the beginning, was any kind of grand master plan for world domination. It's just. Right. I just wanted to play. I'm just happy to play, and if I'm traveling and playing, and and can you know afford to get by somehow one way or another, um, then it's all good, right? There's there's right. no yeah. other plan. I mean, you're you're making some whatever money, some money, you know, playing yeah. guitar. You got no overhead. You're a kid. You're having mm -hmm. a blast. You know, there's no greater feeling than that. So okay, so then. You've done the, the band with your friends. Now you've moved to London. You've done Sideman stuff. You started the tour a little bit. When do you start to even have the thought of, like, you know, writing your own material and kind of going your own way? Uh, well, first it was I didn't even think about writing anything until I went my own way and was sort of forced into it. So what happened was there's a place still there in London uh, called the Ain't Nothing But The Blues Bar. 
Um, it's a hole in the wall, real juke joint place, so just off Regent Street. And uh, so I'd been playing there with different people, maybe Ian Siegel, Lee Sankey, you know, like it was a spot that everybody would hang out. So I started doing my own little show there and uh, with the organ trio. So it was Johnny Henderson uh, and a couple of different drummers did it. And we eventually settled on Evan Jenkins. And so we were playing like a week night and we were, this place was rammed. It was going great. But they used to, <laughs> they had a blue light um, on the, a blue light bulb above the mixer that was mounted on the wall and a DB meter. And if you kept, if, if you set the blue light off for too long, it would trip the PA and they'd cut you out, you know? So you had to stay under something. And it was just, it was like just low enough that you can't fully play. Do you know what I mean? You know when it's set like, it's like you're holding back the whole time. So um, I had a, I used to borrow my friend Sam Hare's deluxe reverb actually and turn it around. So I had a deluxe reverb turned around. That was the most I could get away with, you know, because I had my super reverb by that point, but there was no way in this place. And the stage wasn't even big enough for a full drum kit and Johnny sat on the floor with this, organ you know but it was great orchestra and so we got fired for being too loud even though we were packing the place the guy well it was one of those the guy phones me and goes like they've been the manager's been telling me how loud it is i'm like people love it nobody's leaving nobody's complaining you know and well you're gonna have to respect it more than that. i'm like well then you're gonna have to respect me more than that because you know at some point i have to say what i'm doing is right you know um so it was a good start getting fired for being too loud um and I thought, well, then I'm never, I'm not pleasing all the people all of the time, right? You know, so that was good. On so I, then I thought, well, this people to not do something with. So that's when I contacted uh, a guy called Richard Pavitt in up a gig I'd done also with some other bands, um, and uh, we went and started playing his place. Played it a couple of times, and he said, why don't you? record it next time you're here and I'll help you get some more gigs. So we did, we did it on eight tracks. Um, so organ trio on eight tracks, one overhead, kick and snare, mono Leslie top, mono Leslie bottom bass, guitar and vocals. You know, that was the, um, and that became my first release at all under my own name, the Matt Schofield Trio, Trio Live, you know, and people still bang on about that album to me now. I'm like, if yeah. you knew how little we knew that that was going to be a record, I mean, it's literally me turning to Johnny and saying, uh, shuffle and see, all right? And then Evan counts it off and I sing Traveling South over yeah. the top of it. And yeah. that, you know, and Sissy struts on there. I mean, it's, we do a soul live <laughs> tune, you know, it, because we were, we didn't, I, we were all still playing in other people's bands. Johnny was touring with uh, Otis Grand, the British blues guitar player. That, yeah. And uh, Evan was in Dennis band. He was Evan was like on with a rock band on EMI, you know. So everybody was doing all this stuff, you know. So um, we put that album out. Uh, the first review from Blues Matters magazine in the UK said it wasn't blues at all, and that uh, we were a good jazz band, but they didn't understand that it was blues. <laughs> so that was our first review because we would do because we weren't just going, you know. <laughs> All the, which I love as well, but we weren't doing that. And it was swinging, and there was two fives, and 
you know, it was somewhere, if you listen to that record, it's somewhere between like Ronnie Earl's 90s stuff and a bit of Robin and the Blue Line, but with organ instead and, uh, and the meters, you know, and soul life. It was organ trio. Anyway, we were too jazzy for them. Um, and uh, nothing much has changed since then with the nothing blues people. Much in fact, changed. right? Yeah, nothing much has changed. That's uh, 15, no, that's 17 years ago now. So, yeah, so to answer your original question, after that, I was like, well, shit, I better write some songs. And, and I guess I'm singing as well, you know? So, <laughs> and I'd always sung a bit, but then you, you end up growing up in public with your voice as well, you know, because that's always taken, we did take a back seat for the first. 15 years of playing, you know, so yep. it's, it's always going to be catching up. So. Yeah. Man, so just let's get your perspective then on what you just said about you yeah. were too jazz then. We're always too jazz for the blues, too mm-hmm. blues for the jazz, and yeah. not rock and roll at all, really. You know, even though we play rock yeah. and shit, it's like we don't yeah. fit in anywhere, you know. But in my mind, I'm just a fucking blues guitar player. I don't know about you. Yeah, and honestly, I think, I'll be bold here, I think we're more true to the tradition of blues guitar than a lot of people who claim to say a certain kind of thing is blues guitar. I think John Schofield is more true to the tradition of blues guitar than somebody who's just playing old-sounding licks on old gear, you know? Like, because... Muddy didn't do that. BB didn't do that. Albert didn't do that. Albert Collins didn't do that. But if if you and me came along tuned to F minor with a capo at the tenth fret, and nobody had done that before, it'd be like, well, that's not blues, you know. So I don't know when I don't know when uh, innovating became not blues and sounding the same as everybody else became the blues. So I'm that might be controversial, but every just mean the Stevie Ray's and side of things because that's always the first criticism lobbed at you as well when you're of a certain generation right so I spent years hearing that one first of all so it's like which one is it man do I sound just like Stevie Ray or am I not playing am I too jazzy which one is it right you know and then it's and then it's you sound if you do anything slightly diminished then you're just like Robin Ford. <laughs> and of course, I haven't mentioned him yet, and he was very, very important to me somewhere in the middle of those teenage years because he was the first time I went, okay, what's more than this pentatonic? You know, just to digress for a second, we, he, yeah. that was the catalyst for that. And that, of course, is why I ended up being too jazzy for the blues people. Well, but- Robin, Robin was mostly, for me, most influential in my mindset. Because that's exactly what I said. Yeah. yeah, hearing Robin play blues with Jimmy Witherspoon and Charlie Musselwhite, right? And hearing Robin Blue Line and Yellow Jackets and stuff, it made me realize that it was fucking okay to play whatever you know. Exactly. It doesn't mean you disrespect the blues or dis don't know your shit. No, Robin knew the blues. He'd studied it. He'd done his homework, and it was like. All those people, all of a sudden, it was like, all those people tell me I couldn't play that in the blues. It was like, mm-hmm. blues. no, you're wrong. I respect you're the blues wrong. as much as anybody, you know? Uh-huh. And, and I know as much about stuff, it. 
doesn't mean I all of a sudden don't like the blues anymore. Well, like that's that's always been the strange thing, right? It's like it seems like at some point this rule became that you can only play the blues if you can only play the blues, <laughs> right? But that's just not true. It's just not true. And by the way, I have bootlegs of B.B. King from the early 90s and mid-80s, and he is treading diminished lines. Like, he's, he's doing Charlie Christian lines that he's learned when he's a kid. Yeah. He's doing Django lines. I've got yeah. the recording, man. Yeah. His phrasing is like Louis Armstrong. It's where he's playing all his influences, but they're all gigs where... You know, they're bootlegs where he's not having to be just like B.B. King because I'm sure he felt the pressure of that just like everybody else, you know. So I've got stuff, unbelievable guitar playing. And I will say, as what you talk about Robin, it was Robin's entire approach to the guitar and music, as you say, the whole approach. And also for me, it was here in the Blue Line. That was the first Robin I heard. And the way the whole band played, it was like everybody in this band is a badass. I've never heard a whole band, and, and they had a sound. So that was very influential. I was, especially in the type of band I wanted to have, it was like, I want a band like the Blue Line, you know. And the same for Johnny Henderson at the time. He was growing up, we, we were starting to play together, and we were all hearing that together, you know. And um, But sometimes, you know, when people hear something, certainly in my case that I do, and they think it's Robin, uh, it's actually BB, you know, it's actually BB. And if you really listen to BB, it, there's so much jazz in his playing, you know, his phrasing and everything, which is, that brings us back to what we're talking about with, you know, the irony is the king of the blues has a big band with horns that are swinging and he plays sophisticated jazzy lines on his guitar, Absolutely. you know. Like you said, he came up listening to, you know, T-Bone Walker and, yeah. and, you know, Django Reinhardt and Charlie yeah. Christian. That's who he was hearing, you know? Well, those yeah, guys, Lonnie Johnson, like right? Shit, you know? Yeah. Lonnie Johnson. So yeah, I, I don't like yeah. the dumbing down of, of, you know, I understand why people say BB is, um, you could play that one note like nobody else, but he could also play like lots of notes like nobody else. It wasn't because he could only play one note. Yeah. I, I feel that there's a disservice and a sort of, you know, slightly dumbed down um, view that I don't appreciate, you know? Yeah. Well, I don't appreciate that in in music, but especially in blues in general. I'm just... Yeah, absolutely. I reached my boiling point years ago with it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be me and whatever, you know, they don't like it. it doesn't and that's matter. what it should be, what you just said there. What what happened to the being me thing? Because that's what I always wanted. And, of course, you hear all my influence in there. But more than anything, when I saw that video of Albert, um, Albert Collins, Stevie, and BB, I was like, well, they all sound completely different. You couldn't find three more different sounding guys. They're not even tuned to the same thing on that video. BB's in standard, Stevie's in E-flat, Albert Collins is in F. Yeah. You couldn't find three more distinctive sounds, and yet they're all killing it. They're all amazing, and that's to me what it was always supposed to be, you know. And then it now it's like people want it to be homogenized into a thing. Why does everybody sound the same? And from the more traditional side of things, all the way up to you know when I scroll through Instagram, not just in the blues, you know, and I'm just sounding like an old cantankerous old fart now, but. Everybody sounds the same, and I don't know why everybody wants to do that. It's like now you have to learn 
everybody else's licks. Well, I can't play anybody else's licks very well, but I can play some of my own, you know, and I know that's the same for you, man. It's like, that's what I enjoy more than anything. So anyway, I'm ranting now, but, you know, we've done this many times out there. And many it's... times, many times. <laughs> yeah, the blues, the blues world, you know, <laughs> they fucking bang their own heads against the wall. They eat their young. They do. They eat their own for sure. It's uh, yeah. It's a funny old situation, man. Yep. Well, let's get into the the ten questions because I want to know some okay. answers to some of these. Yeah. Uh, when you first started, so so maybe it was Voodoo Child because you mentioned it already. But when you figured, what was the first thing that when you got it under your fingers, you were so proud, and it was like that no turning back. Like I can't believe I got this. This is the coolest thing ever. Yeah, I think it was probably there was that Voodoo Child intro. I can definitely remember. Uh, I also somehow figured out the uh, intro to Purple Haze, which I'd have to think about now because I haven't played for a while. But you know, because that's so that's probably the most outside thing I'd ever had to come across at that point. So and and we wanted to play it with the band, so I had to go do do do, you know, and also even just the against the. You know, so uh, yeah, that was like the most dissonant thing. So that was a big, probably a big one. So yeah. you were learning jazz already, right there, man. Tritone. Exactly. Yeah, man. Flat foxes. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, there's nothing like that feeling of you know you've listened to something a million times and then all of a sudden it comes out of your hands and it's like yeah, what the fuck? Yeah. I did it. Like it's an amazing feeling. Yeah. Uh, what's the first solo then that you ever learned all the way through, note for note? I'm not sure that I've ever learned any solo all the way through, note for note. I, I don't know that I ever did that. I always would play along with records, and I would like learn or kind of get a feel for the opening lick, and then jam, like trade with the record or something. So I don't, I'm trying to think if I, what did I... I've always learned like bits of them. I've like, okay, I've got to have that, you know. But I don't think I ever learned anything all the way through. I probably tried to play. It's all Jimmy, isn't it? Um, probably tried to play uh, Boulder's Love solo because it's so melodic, you know, and it's like a classical piece. Yeah, it um, is like yes, very. That's a very composed solo. Yeah. Yeah. So I probably messed around with that, you know. What about Stevie. Um, I know you yeah, know because I, I know you know all those solos. But is that just yeah? Memory? But it's more, it's more yeah. Like we played the crossfire solo, and all note for, that was a good one. Three super reverbs all yeah. at the same time, right? Yeah. The cross crossfire. Yeah, I mean, at some point though, you can just play them because you've listened to them. Yeah. And so yeah, I could do a good approximation. I don't know that I did that. I probably did. Pride, I probably learned Pride and Joy or something like that. Do you know? Just or um. I honestly can't remember, but it was never, I just say this honestly, it was never a big feature of learning to play, was learning the whole thing note for note. I was always like, I'll have that and I'll have that. Um, because it's been a strength and a weakness for me, I am horrible at then playing it back. I'm not, I don't have any real capacity to learn something and play it exactly on demand again. I can really honestly only play what I feel 
at a given moment based upon my vocabulary. And of course, it's you know you're working within the framework, but like it's really hard. In fact, I had to learn three full Allman Brothers albums in their entirety, all the double guitar parts for New Year's Eve um, this past year to play with uh, Scott Sherrard uh, yeah. and, and a couple of the Allman's guys. That was the hardest thing I can remember doing in years and years and years because I had to learn it exactly, and I just haven't done that. And either I didn't develop my skill for that or I lost my skill for that because I didn't need it because I've just been playing either blues or my own songs. Yeah. But that kicked my ass learning something so anyway i'm digressing but it kind of is related because i never really followed that skill so i did i don't ha i'm not good at it you know okay so, all right i'm a horrible session guitar <laughs> <laughs> what what's the first thing you play every time you pick up a guitar do your hands just go somewhere and play something uh, automatically without thought yeah something like <laughs> Something like that, kind of just sort of see how in tune it is, you know. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. It's something like that. I know I can. I always picture the Josh Smith one actually that ends up with. I think it's something that's got a A major seventh and a B sus thing or something. Yeah. 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 Yeah, <laughs> I moved it to G because people were making fun oh. of me all the time because I would always go, yeah, or something like that. So now it's that's my turn okay. to flip the standby switch and go some way from one to yeah. four, basically. Yeah. I always remember the major seventh and the. Yeah. I play that chord a lot as well for some reason. Well, what about like if you're in a store and you want to check a guitar? Do you have a thing you do like to see if it's any good? I have no guitar shop chops at all, man. I don't have anything impressive. Well, I don't mean chops. Know. I mean like to see if you even like a guitar, like to feel. Like say, I always, I'll always i play that chord, like the uh, E9 thing or whatever yeah, that is. Nine. Yeah, same kind of thing as you like a major, because you can just hear how all the notes fit together with something like that. Yeah, that's one as well, just through like Jimmy through the E B A or something. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's things like that, isn't it? You know, it's well, then, never wailing. <laughs> so then, for number four, it may tie in. Do you have something that kind of runs through your head like a narration, you know, all the time? So I'm hearing a shuffle literally twenty four fucking hours a day, and I'm hearing somebody blowing over, and I'm just hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might. I I had. Uh... Some shuffle like that all morning today for in B flat and just like a head, um, yeah. And there are other times I get earworms they call them right. Oh yeah. But it's it's no, it's normally a shuffle, normally swinging. But then I had uh, I had uh, Band of Gypsies, Power of Soul, Power of Love, for the longest time. That was just my entire life was consumed by. Um, 
uh, I can't remember it. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. I just oh, had dude. that going I forever. Was so proud. So. Like figuring that out was a big moment. Yeah. Big moment. Yeah. 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 But yeah. that goes, uh, that becomes like a massive uh, earworm for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, dude, I'm so bad. Like when I'm, when it's time to go to sleep, it's like I can't until like I finish that fucking solo that's running through my head. It yeah. has to wrap up somehow. And I sometimes have to listen to something, that, yeah. <laughs> put the TV on or something to distract because of, uh, and now I've got like, I've had horrendous tinnitus this year since those New Year's Eve gigs because we had two two full drum kits in the Funky Biscuit. That's and what it the just Allman Brothers me. will do to you, bro. That's what they yeah, do. well, it did. It was, uh, it was Mark uh, on, on the, one of the kits and... Uh, uh fucking hell man yeah it's so maybe the no gigs since beginning of march thing has been a blessing because i had to get plugs and do i remember the, the slide bar thing we did it was one of my first times playing with plugs in and it was it's horrible man you know i missed my tone so but it's still also, ringing it was ridiculously loud that gig yes like, yeah but uh what do you expect I, I, a hundred two rocks on stage. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's not over the top at all. <laughs> yeah, not at all. <laughs> uh, number five, man. When when did you feel like you started to find your voice? Was there like a little moment where you you lucked into something, or just something fell out, and you were like, "Ooh, I should go more that way." That's that sounds like something no one else. That's me. I find I'm finding me. Yeah, I guess it was. When I st actually when I started the organ trio with Johnny and Evan, and I thought, yeah, there's a there's a context for me to put my playing in, so it's not going to be, um, well, it was a strat through a super reverb, but I was determined to not have that define me, if you know what I mean, as yeah. being Stevie, and it's like, no, I can still do this and not sound like Stevie, and. Um, Funnily enough, then I started playing the Talior 335 sometimes, and everybody's like, it's just like Robin. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I went back to the Strat and sort of, I was like, okay, I think I can be the white guy that plays the Strat through a super reverb and doesn't sound like Stevie exactly, even though, of course, Stevie's in there, you know, but it's a different kind of playing. Um, but it was that, and conversely, also going, well, I'm going to put, hopefully some of that Robin-esque uh, sophistication into a Strat and a Super Reverb kind of tone, you know? So that was, it was that. But the most I ever started to realize I had my own sound was when you start hearing other people who sound like you. <laughs> and then you're like, shit, that sounds like me. And then you really hear it more than when you're playing yourself. Do you know what I mean? It's, and It's, it's like, weird. It's weird. Yeah. And it's it's so not now, like the long it's not the long licks I'm realizing like no. there's people who rip off my licks, uh, yeah. sure, which is an honor. Like I'm, I, it's amazing. But it's the little ways that I end phrases that now I'm starting to hear like, wait, wait a minute, like people like that's that's my little ending of a phrase, you know? And it's like, I, wow, that is weird. Yeah, I say this as as humbly as possible, but scrolling through Instagram for me and i'm sure for you is quite a trip sometimes <laughs> and like in terms of hearing things coming back at you and you're like this is crazy man I, and i don't say that because like 
so well known or anything like that but you're like i am in the fabric of this whole thing now it's you fucking know? weird it's weird yeah I, I keep hearing people play this like if i'm playing whatever ending a phrase by going um that <laughs> and it's like wait i do that a million times a night you know there's no yeah. mistaking that that's they got that from me <laughs> yeah and you're almost kind of like you don't want to be super claiming of it for a while because you feel, oh, you know, we're all doing the same thing. But then after a while, I'm like, holy shit, that's, this guy sounds so much like me. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so he knows more of my licks than I do. It, you know, like sometimes, because I'm like, I even forgot that one. I don't even play that anymore. But it's great as well. You ever look at people teaching your licks on a video and be like, that's fucking wrong. That's not how yeah. <laughs> I have stepped in and corrected people here and there on a couple of things. Actually. Oh, man. But, oh, of course, it's incredibly flattering as well, you know. Incredibly flattering, yeah. As, um, as Ke I was talking to Kevin Hayes, you know, that drummed with me and this was played with played with everybody over the years, many years as a Robert Cray band. And he was talking about guys like us. And he goes, he goes, well, you know, it's like you guys, you came from the, from the, the young up-and-comers, the new guys, you know, to these kind of uh, uh, in the fabric of the whole thing kind of journeyman players without ever having the golden years in between, you know? <laughs> so it's like we never That's got the, the tour bus and got rich. It's like we went straight to, I, I, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like just stalwarts or something of oh, the, you know. Yeah, that's weird because we skipped out on the the glory and the money. Yeah, we never had the gold record and the and the bus, but now everybody plays like us. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, how many times does a nineteen year old come to your gig and go, "You're a fucking legend. You're a, yeah. this is a legend." Yeah. You know, me with the goat. And they take a picture. I don't want to. Like, yeah, I was icon. There you go. We're we're now. It's you can go from up and coming to icon with absolutely zero financial reward or basically a career <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Iconic losers. That's right. That's right. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Number six. <laughs> what do you consider your biggest weakness on the guitar? Um, not being able to play stuff that I need to be able to play on demand you know so really i i uh i i uh i've allowed that to slip in the pursuit of improvisation and just not caring and just oh be having the luxury of just playing exactly what i feel my ability to deliver a performance um you know, I'm a horrible, horrible session guitarist. I gave it up when I was 19 because I wasn't very good at it. And I could only play what I thought sounded good on the track and not what the producer wanted me to play. And I'm like, so I left the session. It was a pop session in London. And I said, listen, I don't want to waste your time. I don't think I'm the guy for this. So I'm like 19 and I go back to my shared flat in London. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to be like, Eric Clapton or Carla Santana or something where they they only get the call to do their solo. <laughs> this is like nineteen year old me, but I was, but I, uh, but in a way, then you know, my friend um, Prakash John and Jordan John up there in Canada. I remember Prakash talking about you know, like after years, you think you can still do all the things you always did when you were younger, even if you don't do them anymore. 
but gradually they actually if you don't maintain them they do slip away you know the ability and so in my um selfish goal of of doing whatever i feel like on the guitar it has it has definitely weakened my ability to uh, to play things on demand so like i say that allman brothers thing was an absolute nightmare for me i've never i can't remember working that hard on something and then so then you realize what i'm actually saying is i'm lazy about that stuff i and i am i am i like playing how i play you know and at this point what comes out is pretty much you know what i want it to come out you know what i mean it's like it's not like i'm trying to play like something that i can't at this point you know after right. if i wanted to be more jazzy i'd be more jazzy by now i'm too lazy to learn any more of that you know because it all seems too much like thinking about it and hard work for me so i guess the reason i play sorry this is a long answer but the reason i play ultimately is to just play and that's something i've especially learned during this time off is man i miss it you know like it's like a mental health thing you know so i've kind of fully immersed myself in being like that with my music and just getting it out and not caring about anything other than that but it's left that leaves a lot of things by the wayside and then when there's a global pandemic um you find that you don't have that anymore and it's really and like we were talking about before we started this doing a channel like this or something that seems like such a massive undertaking because i've let all that go by the wayside and but it just for in the pursuit of this kind of self enjoyment of m making music how i feel like you know yeah well i mean and the honest answer for me is i'm doing this just because I have to somehow create some motivation to be playing right now mm -hmm. and to be doing something because like you said, 90% of what I identify as is just gone. I'm an improviser mm -hmm. first and foremost. And that means yeah. not sitting on the couch improvising by myself, even though I do that every fucking day. No, it's improvising with a band, you know, in a yes. moment in front of people. And it's like, so now I'm having to take the other 10%, which is still all really great. It's playing guitar, it's working on music, it's producing records, it's teaching lessons, it's doing whatever. It's better than working at Home Depot. I'm not complaining, but sure. I'm having to squeeze everything that fulfills me out of the 10% and not the giant chunk that really is the main part of me. That's that we do the whole thing for in the first place and always have had. for me, And that's the thing. I'm trying to explain to people it's 29 years since i started no since i did my first gig it's 30 years since i've been playing yep. and you can't go yep. 29 years of giving your life not and i say sacrifice i don't mean that in the way some people sacrifice their lives you know yeah. I, I, but, but we have you give up many other things you know like i keep i've kept my overheads very low i don't even own a car myself you know because that was just an extra expense because i was gone half the month and all you know everything in your life to then just go well we can't do that anymore Shit, it was only 30 yeah. that's half a lifetime you know so yeah. it's yeah. from a mental point of view it's hard to get your head around as well isn't it you know yeah it's tough man it's tough it's a brave new world brave yeah sorry about these people texting me that's all right keep hearing the pinging Ding. i can't turn that off on the computer thank you apple 
<laughs> All right. An A. Uh, <laughs> what? Um, who's a huge influence on your playing that people would be surprised to hear? Um, Billy Gibbons. Oh, okay. I love early the early ZZ Top. In fact, I love all ZZ Top. You know, even the records that other people don't like. But yeah, man, Billy is phrasing and the tones and it, yeah, from a guitar point of view, but he's my biggest odd influence. Um, I love Eric Johnson as well, but, um, but I never really tried to play like him. I just like listened to his music and I stole one lick and put it on my record, uh, but swung it instead. But Billy, at any time, man, as soon as I got my record player, when I got this place, and I started getting my vinyl again. That was the first stuff I bought was the early ZZ Top records. Nice. All those tones. His timing, you know, because and that's a really – he just made everything always, like, just feel kind of nasty, you know. And that, mm-hmm. so, yeah, yeah, Billy. All right, good answer. Uh, all right. I, I'm curious about this one because you like both. So would you rather have a great guitar and a shitty amp or vice versa? Crappy guitar um, on a gig. On a gig. On a gig. I think I go for the good amp, you know? Yeah. Me too. I think so. Me too. Although without too. without it's real well, it also it depends. I was gonna say without good frets, you know. Um, no, a playable guitar. I, a playable yeah, okay, guitar, yeah. but not your guitar. You oh then you give me a Chinese. give me a Chinese squire with decent frets and a two rock and I'm sound the same they lost my guitar on tour in italy last year and uh so i had to borrow a guitar for the show but i had the two rock ts1 rig that i'd been hooked up with by the italian guys so we got there and they had a road worn 50s mexican strap that hadn't been touched it was rusted the strings were rusted it had not been touched in like five years so i did a setup on it in 15 minutes changed the strings straight in the neck you know, adjusted the pickups, cleaned it up, did the gig, sounded 99% the same as my own. I didn't dig it as much, but yeah. I'm sure there's videos on YouTube if you see me playing a maple neck strat, sunburst strat. It, does, it sounds so much the same, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm 100% with you. Uh, the, the audience would get a better show in that scenario with the amp and whatever guitar. If I had my pedal board and my amp and whatever. Yeah. And whatever guitar, the, it's going to be a better show than if I have this guitar and a JC120. You know? Yeah, and I've had it the other way around as well, you know, or where a, a silver-faced twin with broken reverb and one blown speaker, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I can't do this, you know. So. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, we're on the same page, but it's been split 50-50 on the answer. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of people who I've interviewed rely very much on their personal instrument for part of their sound. So it's like, they mm. almost can't do their gig without it. And some are more like us, you know what I mean? It's yeah. usually improv guys versus non-improv guys. You know what I mean? But, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And like, like I can make a Les Paul work or something, even though I never exactly. play one. Yeah. But yeah. Well, like I interviewed uh, Tosin Abasi yesterday, and he can't, he couldn't play a gig without the eight string fan fret. Of course, all right. All the songs revolve around it. You know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. Um, what keeps you like, you know, and maybe, maybe you're not right now in the pandemic, but 
What keeps you like motivated to maybe work on new stuff and like pick up new things into your playing? And do you think about yeah, that it's important to you? It it is tough, isn't it? You know, I've been through lots of different emotional states uh, with this thing and not feeling like doing anything. You know, then feeling like almost like guilty about that as well. You know, so then you feel like you have to do something. I'm glad I seem to have had a fairly steady trickle of just the odd tracks coming in where I've been like, okay, I better get my shit together because I got to sound good on this. So uh, I was real happy. Uh, Alan Evans from Soul Live sent me a track to play on, you know, and with with some cool people on it. I was like, okay, better. I need to sound good on this, you know. <laughs> and, and that's when I'd been away for a month for some family reasons, so I had a guitar there, but I wasn't really thinking about, yeah. you know music at all you know so I, I in fact i had to say to him can you give me a couple of weeks because I, I can't record and I, i'm just not there you know and i wanted it wanted to be good you know yeah um so usually it comes back to listening to stuff you know mostly the same stuff i've always listened to and that makes me want to play um you know i've got about like three projects that uh, i could pull up here on my computer and do work on that need to be released you know i have a trio record with Johnny and Evan that we tracked two years ago. I sang last year in between tour dates and now just needs mixing and I mess around with it and then I go, oh, well, what am I going to do with this anyway? Because, you know, it, like, the only reason to release a record now is so you can tour with it, you know, and I can't get, well, so what do I do? Put it out and then it just, I so get nothing for it on Spotify. I mean, like, and then by the time my... My European agents will be like, uh, so we need a new record to uh, book you some gigs. And I'm like, what happened to that one, man? I wrote all those songs, you know? Like, yeah. so yeah. you now, so now everything comes with like a double set of possible scenarios as well, because there isn't just a, well, I don't really feel like making a record, but I need to make one because I got to get some gigs. So now it's like. Well, is there even a point in doing it? Because I'm not going to make any money back from it. Oh, and uh, I, I know, yeah. I've got two in the can. And it's like I have no interest in putting either one of them out anytime soon. You know? Yeah. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know. So it's like, okay, I'll make some more True Fire courses because that pays my bills. It really does. Um, and I enjoy I've come to enjoy that. But I didn't really plan on being a guitar teacher either. You know, no, after no, 20 not. years of touring and recording it was like i thought that's what i did and i was happy to do my first true fire course because it was like okay cool i'll put something out hey it'll be a bit of mailbox money you know but i didn't really plan on being like a teacher i already was a thing <laughs> for years <laughs> i already have been a thing that i do you know I'll so you, um, there was uh, there was in guitar world recently they did a uh, a story about the something first they did the poll they always do which whatever but then they did a something about like the best blues songs released in the last five years and somehow i got one on the list right which was nice because i'm never in any of those magazines but what it said about me was los angeles based educator josh smith oh, and I thought, yeah. wait what what like yeah Man, I don't think I've ever been mentioned in Guitar Player magazine ever. I've never think. been in Guitar Player, not once in my whole life. Only Guitar World and Vintage Guitar, Guitar Overseas, but never Guitar Player, not one time. Vintage Guitar, one guy there used to really love me, and uh, 
one guy, Dan Forte, really had a hard on against me. <laughs> it's weird how that works, man. Yeah, I, you would think we would have gotten in Guitar Player Magazine by accident by now. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I've never even been mentioned and of course I, it's unless the only one somebody I care took out an advert for some gear maybe in a two rock advert or yeah. something but yeah. of course it's the only one i care about not i don't mean that really I, i'm thankful for the support but that's the one i've had a subscription to since i was fucking nine years old you know, that was old. my favorite yeah. when i was a kid that was the one i'll be in guitar playing magazine yeah okay. so yeah All right. number 10 man yeah you want to be in five years is it just keep doing this is it you know find some new lane to like bring things like you know do you have even a five-year plan i don't i i try and have a five-day plan at the moment <laughs> it really does feel like that and and that's the crazy thing about this year because it seems like five minutes ago since march when everything stopped when my world stopped but it also seems like five years since then as well in a weird way it's like this du dualistic time thing uh, so five years. Well, in five years, I would like to be uh, getting back on my tour bus after a nice gig in a, uh, you know, in a in a, a reasonable sized theatre. You know, I don't want to play the places that I was sometimes starting to play at some points. Do you know what I mean? Like those nice arts theatres, the places. Uh, or a great festival, you know. I'd never aspired to play the Enorma Dome, you know. I don't, I don't enjoy seeing gigs there, you know. And um, but I just always wanted a bus, and to, uh, not just specifically for the bus, but the idea of playing my music and traveling around in some degree of comfort. I don't need a huge crew. I don't need private jets. But you know, for the last twenty years, or fifteen with my own band. I have driven the van myself, you know, and that's fine. But by the time we come out of this thing, like, and maybe can do any of it again, I'm going to be 45, you know, I'm 43 now. So you start thinking, well, I maybe don't want to be driving the van every day myself. Uh, you know, that's why Robin's not touring much anymore and he's working on studio stuff and producing because it kicks your ass, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But... I could happily be like BB and get back in the bus and get to the next gig, you know? So I've never attained that dream. And I know you as well as the same. That's really all we wanted, right? You know, cause and it doesn't seem like too much to ask. No, but cause you get like this gross sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? It would yeah. mean three to 500 more people coming to see me consistently. Uh, yep. Not three to five thousand more, but more. yeah, yeah, a few hundred more people than what I'd built up, you know, previously. Yeah, instead of having three hundred people or four, or you know, if we could have a, yeah eight hundred people, a thousand people, a thousand, yeah, seven hundred. Yeah, it's enough to change our life and just yeah. have the organization be self-sustaining, and not just that, yeah. be happy. Have the guys around you who want to be there. You're paying them enough. Like it's not it's not life changing money, but it's money where man, they're happy to be there, and everybody's in a good fucking mood all the time. That's and it. That's that, all I want. That feeds back into the creativity as well. You see, because yeah. otherwise you're just on a hamster wheel. And yeah. that I honestly have been burnt out. I haven't released a record in ages because 
I did get burnt out and I still love to play and I didn't want to stop doing that. I didn't want to stop doing gigs and touring. But you do just get onto this hamster wheel of it. So this has been good in some respects for a reset of that and an examination about maybe what I want to do, you know. But um, I still just want to get on my bus, go to the next town, load in, play a room big enough to have a couple of good amps on the go, you know. But that just that's because you get in a nice arts theater, 500 type capacity thing. You can rock a couple of good amps in there without anybody yep. crying too much, you know. Yep. Um, I basically want me to be the determining factor of what happens with my music, you know, in terms of my ability to play it or my, you know, I don't want to be subject to um, other things lowering the level, you know. Yeah. So that's that's that would be the place to be. So yeah, well, fingers crossed, eh? It doesn't seem like too much to ask. It should be a realistic goal, you know, for both of us. And I'm hoping. Yeah, that, yeah, I'm totally. We get there. Yeah, man, me too. I'd really be bummed to get to the end of this uh, whole thing and have never quite got that. Give me one bus tour of my own, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I know I know the feeling, man, and I'm with you. I know you do, yeah. yeah. Good. Well, so. we made it to the end of the 10 questions. And, uh, yeah, man. We didn't depress everybody because we bitch a lot. <laughs> You're listening to the real shit. <laughs> It is the real stuff, man. It is. There's no no way around it, you know. Yeah. It's the blues, yeah. man. It's the truth. <laughs> it's the truth. That's right. Yeah. Five notes in the truth. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So, dude, thank you for doing this and for taking the time out of your day. Oh, your thanks day. for having me, man. And there will be links to all things Matt Schofield underneath this video, including the links to his true fires that get him more money. So buy them from this link. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, for members, we will do a little turn to video now where we'll teach you a lick or two. Um, and if you're not a member, hit join or at least please subscribe. I appreciate the support. And, uh, dude, Matt, thank you very much. Thanks, Josh, mate. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Stay well.